Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hi guys, yes, so a really interesting episode for you guys today, um, as we sort of focus on the story of Michael Jackson, and obviously, um, the last couple of years, um, there's been a lot of controversy, um, well there always was, let's be honest, surrounding Michael Jackson, but it's kind of been ramped up in the last couple of years after the documentary of Leaving Neverland where uh, two men have come forward to say they were abused uh, by Michael when they were children. Um, yeah, and I mean, even as a Michael Jackson fan, myself, you know, a massive Michael Jackson fan, I remember watching the Moonwalker movie as a kid and just being hooked by his music videos at first, I guess, and then just really appreciate his music as I got older. Um, I was one of those people that never believed that Michael Jackson um, was inappropriate with kids. Um, I just thought he was, you know, the Peter Pan um, sort of man-child he always claimed to be, that he never having a childhood and things like that. But after watching that documentary, Leaving Neverland, it did leave a really... Um, a, a bad sour taste um, the doubts came and um, I didn't know what to think anymore there, there were some parts of the documentary that I know have been debunked by um, people and these two men have tried to go to court to claim to get money after following the documentary and I got someone called Aphrodite Jones on who has <laughs> who knows the Jack- Michael Jackson and the family inside out. Um, she was there in the court when Michael Jackson was going for his biggest trial, um, went into the trial thinking Michael Jackson was guilty, came out thinking differently. Um, really, a really wonderful chat with Aphrodite. I mean, she is um, the woman you want to talk to in terms of all this stuff because she, she really knows her stuff. And, you know, I, I tried to get someone because I don't want anyone to kind of think I was this Michael Jackson fan that was going to be biased and just had someone on to defend him. Um, there was three people that I contacted um, to try and get uh, them on um, to have the kind of back and forth debate to try and um, you know have both sides of the story. Um, so, so someone that really did believe that you know Michael Jackson um, was a child abuser, but the for the both the three people that I contacted, one never replied, and the two people. Um, Two of them, I suppose I can I won't say who, but the two these two people were um, you know, they were only interested in, in coming on if it was going to be a hit a hit piece, a one-sided argument against Michael Jackson. They weren't interested in having the other side of the story. Um so I try and ask, you know, as a Michael Jackson fan myself, who, you know, I, I'm gonna be honest, I don't want to believe these accusations of Michael Jackson, but there there are things that trouble me about it and they're they're things that worry me. Um so I do ask Aphrodite the, diff- the difficult questions, and I put these to Aphrodite, and um, we have a really great conversation about it. So without further ado, um, I'm going to leave you now as I enjoy my walk in the sun. <laughs> um, here's my chat with Aphrodite Jones. Hello, 
Right, Aphrodite, how are you? How you been doing? I've been doing very well. How about you? Yeah, good. Is it? I mean, how has this whole year, I suppose, firstly, been for you? Well, you know, honestly, we've all lost a year, haven't we? <laughs> and uh, the emptiness of 2020 is both good and bad, because I think, you know, looking at the positive, I think we've all had to introspect and uh, take a beat. And mm -hmm. our world is just going too fast. And perhaps this was some reason to, uh, you know, step back, slow down the clock a little. So I'm, I'm not, I'm okay with it. Also, I'm writing. I'm a writer, so yeah. I'm writing a new book. So I would be home and alone and isolated, regardless. So yeah, I don't have the same uh, life as uh, most people. You know, mm -hmm. I'm yeah. my own slave driver. Let me put it that way. When I'm writing, <laughs> it's intense. Yeah, well, I, I discovered your first book, well, my, the first book I've read of yours, Conspiracy, the Michael Jackson book, uh, just after Michael died, I, I think I, I read it, and it must have been just after, I don't know when it came out, but it came out before he died, didn't it, the book originally? Before he died, it came yeah. out in uh, 2007. Yeah, and so I mean, and I know you've been involved in lots and lots of different crime documentaries uh, that I've seen you in, but I mean, how did you start, I mean, for people that haven't heard of you, I mean, how, tell them a, bit about your, a little bit about your work and how you started to cover Michael Jackson, I guess. Sure. Uh, you know, I've been covering high-profile trials for years. I was at O.J. Simpson's trial and others that Phil Spector to keep it in the music element. I'm, and so when Michael Jackson was was going to be tried, I'm as a fan of Michael Jackson. I you know was able to get in there. I covered it for Fox News, which was not so biased at the time, um, and I was one of the few reporters who actually was in the courtroom because at that trial were 2,400 credential media people from around the globe and only 50 of us were, were in the courtroom every day. So, um, it, it, you know, as I said, I'm a fan of Michael Jackson. I also had opinions about Michael Jackson that, you know, very much I believed that he had molested this kid and he was going to see, you know, prison. And of course, by the end of it all, I realized that he didn't do anything to this kid. Mm -hmm. um, th this Gavin Arvizo was from a family of grifters and it was so clear to the jury, yet the media was stunned. And so was I really at that, at that time. Yeah, so, so you actually went into it thinking he was guilty that when, before the trial sort of started. I did. Yeah. I absolutely thought he was guilty. Um, you know, that $20 million payout or $25 million mm -hmm. payout that he made to, um, um, what's his name now? I forget. The, um, uh, Jordy Chandler. Jordy Chandler. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, th that's damning <laughs> as, as, you know, as can be. And he spent a lot of years trying to uh, make up for that by, ultimately allowing Martin Bashir into his life. And allegedly they were going to be filming um, something that would highlight his work with children and the fact that he wanted to have a children's holiday, like a Mother's Day and a Father's Day. And uh, of course, Bashir, we now know, and I knew then, um, is crooked. Mm. And with the new news about how he manipulated uh, Princess Diana, and it was only because of his interview with Princess Diana, let's face it, that Michael Jackson agreed to talk to this man. There was no other reason. Michael wanted to be royalty, hence he named his son Prince, hence he married uh, Elvis Presley's daughter. That was his uh, goal, always. And uh, he felt 
flattered that the person who interviewed Lady Diana, Princess Diana, and had her reveal herself to him, you know, had to be, uh, you know, one of the world's best journalists. And he did it, uh, Lawrence, without any contract with Bashir, without any pay from Bashir. And the only thing he did to ensure that this, this wasn't going to be a hit piece, he had his own videographer there, I'm sure you realize that, um, to, to chronicle the whole, uh, the whole uh, taping that they did for hours and hours on end. And, uh, and that kind of saved him, I think, um, certainly did at the trial because we watched two and a half hours rather than an hour that was actually aired, um, you know, at the time of, of Bashir's height and glory. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting we sort of talk about Martin Bashir because, you know, what do, doing this episode with you now, you know, being a Michael Jackson fan, I'm quite wary people are going to be like, oh, but you're just defending him. It's one sided. You know, you're not going to kind of give both sides of the argument. And, I, you know, I was going to do a sort of part one, a part two, sort of talk to you, then talk to someone that was, you know, perhaps of the came to conclusion that Michael Jackson was a pedophile. But it's very hard to get people that want to engage in a balanced interview like I did reach out to different people Martin Bashir was one of those people but again he's under a lot of scrutiny right now so he was having none of it none of it um there's a Diane Diamonds there's a Dan Reed that did find in Neverland but none of them were interested unless they thought it was going to be a Michael Jackson hit talk like we were going to talk about why this person was a paedophile and the second they kind of thought you know I was a Michael Jackson fan I wanted to get a balance you know I said I'm gonna be as balanced as I can because there was things that worry worried me about finding Neverland not finding Neverland sorry leaving Neverland with um, the, um, the documentary that came out there was things that worried me about that but these some of these people that want to argue the fact that they believe Michael Jackson is a pedophile do not want to talk about why juries found him innocent do not want to talk about why you know, some of the stuff that was going on with Julie Chandler and his dad and, you know, and some of the inaccuracies in the documentary. And if you can't ask those questions, then you're not going to get a balanced interview anyway. So I don't know if that's your experience. Because I know you've been, you know, you've come across some of these people. They're very, they don't want to look at some of the evidence, do they? No, they don't want to look at the evidence. And they, you know, nobody, including Diane Diamond, mm-hmm. went bothered to go and review the actual evidence after the trial. In fact, she contacted me at the time. I, I know her and knew her very well. Um, and she asked if I would share uh, the evidence with her. She was writing a book. And I thought, and I said to her, the evidence available, I, I got a court order from the judge. You know, you, you can now go review all the evidence you like, go to Santa Maria. Of course she didn't. And um, really nobody cared in the media about Michael's innocence or being fair to Michael Jackson. People wanted to, um, lynch him. They wanted to have a public lynching of Michael Jackson. Um, this the news was salacious. Anything that would have been exculpatory was excluded from news reports. Um, and I know that because when I was on Fox, uh, you know, anything I wanted to say that was positive about Michael Jackson was was I was told, you know, we're not. I was covering it day by day. However, if it was a day that was exculpatory for the defense. They didn't want me covering it. They didn't have me on the air. So, you know, that tells you everything you need to know about the bias in the media. And in fact, the book I wrote, Lawrence, was a condemnation of the media before. This is, you know, I wrote it in 2006, way before anybody was even understanding that wasn't really social media yet. Nobody, nobody really believed that the media could be that biased and, uh, what's the word, corrupt? Mm-hmm. 
it, it was something that I did thinking that I was ending my career, frankly, and I didn't yeah. care because I, I felt the truth had to be told and uh, no one else was going to do that. So I did. Yeah. And I think what a lot of people don't realize as well is with the Arviso case is they actually said the abuse happened after the documentary with Bashir went out. It wasn't something that was happened. They, you know, the they alleged that it was all sort of happened. Oh no, it was but it all happened after that. It happened after we did the rebuttal and after we did this sort of documentary where they sort of showed Michael and this kid and how it helped him. And it just kind of made you makes you think, well, that surely that wouldn't happen when that because as, as soon as that documentary went out, it was controversial, you know, it was headline news, especially in this country. It went mad useful, the Wacko Jacko stuff in oh, the media here. And and it was the same here and around the globe. And everybody in the world contacted Michael's people, um, from Barbara Walters to 60 Minutes to you name it, um, desperate to get that interview. And uh, yeah, everyone wanted to know. Everyone wanted to hear from this family who lived in a barrio. Everyone wanted to have a proof or uh, you know get the scoop. And the truth is as we learned in court, that they weren't even there until Martin Bashir, and that was not clear clear at the time of the court trial. Martin Bashir is the person who just suggested that Michael bring up the Arvizo family to be interviewed as part of Michael's attempt to have show how much he helped children who had sicknesses, etc. It wasn't Michael's idea. It was Bashir's idea. It was also Bashir's idea, by the way, according to his attorney at the time, Michael's attorney, to have them hold hands and sit on the bed. Bashir orchestrated that whole little scene, knowing full well how he was going to utilize it later. So Michael was didn't know these people anymore. He That wasn't even his first choice. There was another kid, his name is David, who was burned badly yes, by his yeah. father, right? Who I met a, a million years ago, and it was just horrific. That's who Michael wanted there. Um, and Bashir kind of just orchestrated, no, 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 um, we're going to have these people and it'll be good for you. And, you know, um, Michael, of course, being an innocent, trusting this guy because he was, you know, Princess Diana's person, allowed it to happen. And yeah, you're right, Lawrence, the timeline of the alleged abuse here is backwards. Mm -hmm. You think that with the whole world calling, the whole media calling, from London to, to Tokyo, to New York, to California, you think that Michael Jackson would now decide to molest this child? He's got everybody on top of him accusing and wondering and wanting to know. So he's got the family up at the ranch with him at Neverland because he wants to make sure they're not gonna lie. They're not gonna take monies from tabloids um, and tell a story that isn't true. That's why his people had the, the Arvizos on the property. <laughs> yeah. And and this is when Michael's going to allegedly abuse Gavin Arviso after the fact? When the whole, he's a, in a fishbowl? No. Makes no sense. And didn't yeah. happen. I mean, I, happen. You, were, you were there in the trial. And from what I've read and, and people have discussed, Martin Bashir well, you know, was in the trial, but he was a bit of a disaster for the prosecution because he didn't really answer anything. He didn't answer a thing. He, he um, used his privilege as a member of the media 
to stand on that ceremony the entire time. He was the first witness at the trial. His footage of what he had um, produced, as I say, were two and a half hours was the first thing we saw at the trial prior to his testimony. And so even though he didn't answer anything, the fact that he was so clamped up and the fact that we were able to see other sides of Michael that he had conveniently omitted from his documentary allowed us from jump to understand this guy had an agenda. And uh, the prosecutions are the one who, who revealed that at the opening. So again, though, people were slanted, people were media was already had made up their minds, including myself. And so I don't know that we really looked at the to total picture at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at what point, because, you know, like you said, you went into thinking Michael was guilty. At what point during the trial, was there a particular witness or particular evidence for you that really made you think this, this guy's not done anything? You know what, Lawrence? I was so programmed, wacko jacko, all the people who continue to allege abuse um, that, frankly, I, I never had a moment during the trial where I thought he wasn't guilty. It was only when the jury came out with their verdict and mm -hmm. people's mouths were dropped open that I, I suddenly realized, you know what? The emperor has no clothes. The jury got it right. And it was at that point where I admitted it on Fox News, where I tried very much to you know, pull it back. And when I realized they weren't gonna do that, that no one in the, you know, no one in the media really covered the fact much that, that Michael was found innocent. Mm -hmm. Do you know that they all pulled away, all the trucks, all the news, I was there right after the fact, I stayed. They were gone, they were gone. They never uh, gave any hint that this had even happened. It was as if it didn't happen. They in fact reported about other alleged abuse following the trial. So um, yeah, I, I had that, that aha moment, that epiphany in the courtroom that day. And I saw the white doves being released by the fans. And I thought, you know, I got this wrong. Everybody got this wrong in the media. Mm -hmm. And I need to do something about it. And like I say, no one else, no one else cared about that. No one else cared about the truth. Yeah. And it was only upon reflection and in writing the book and in going back over the evidence, the, the biggest thing was the Gavin interview with the police, with the Santa Barbara sheriffs. He was lying. He was being led by them. It's obvious. And that's what the jury told me. I did get to interview members of the jury, including the foreman. And they said, point blank, he was lying. He was, it was obvious to them that this kid was making things up and that this kid was being led down the path by the sheriffs. And when I looked at it, I thought to myself, oh yeah. And the main thing was, he claimed he didn't know what ejaculation was. And I thought, okay, he's like in his tweens. Hmm. What are you talking about? You know, if that's a big fat lie. And when he says that, coupled with the fact that his brother and sister have wrong dates and he's supposedly molested five or six times and Gavin is saying, I don't remember, and it was four times, and it was three. I mean, he's lying through his teeth. Yeah. I mean, and, and to keep that balance to the people that listen in that, you know, do feel that, you know, there was something in this. Was there evidence against Michael that was at any stage quite damning at any point when you were covering it? Well, again, I go back to Jordy Chandler and mm -hmm. 
June, June Chandler testified. And when she testified, um, it was uncomfortable. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, when she talked about traveling with Michael and Jordy and, and being in Europe and being, you know, given gifts by Michael, expensive gifts, jewelry, et cetera. Um, and how Michael wanted Jordy to stay in his hotel room. And she kind of had a tug of war with him about that rather than in her room. Um, when she talked about that, um, she never said like the people in even leaving Neverland, she never said she suspected Michael of anything. She did not testify to that fact at all. In fact, what she seemed to come off as was somebody who was herself in love with Michael Jackson and that she was getting gifts and, and favors and traveling with Michael because he was wanted to be with her. So it was it was a bit confusing, but at the same time, when you hear Michael went to the house often and slept with Jordy in his room, and when you hear Michael broke down in tears, she testified, when he when she was refusing to allow Jordy to stay in his room rather than her room in hotels, then you know you have to think twice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, in the trial and going again back to Gavin in, in this trial. A lot of people say the best defense, the best witness for the defense was actually Gavin's mum. I mean, you were there. Was she just that terrible for the prosecution? She was a nut. She was an absolute <laughs> okay. nut. I mean, we had now by that time seen the rebuttal video that they made. Um, I don't know how many times, countless times. Okay, it came up. Misero was so good at you know bringing that forward and reminding us about. Here's this family who says Michael, Daddy Michael was a daddy to them, was a helped them and did everything he could. No one else would help them. And Michael did help them. So, you know, she had to now come on, on the stand and negate that. And she did not do a very good job of it. She really turned the jury off. She was snapping her fingers at the jury. She mm. was testifying directly to the jury, which was weird. Um, there was just so much wrong and holes in her stories and claimed she'd been kidnapped and there was a conspiracy to kidnap her and her children when in fact she was driving back and forth on Michael's Rolls Royce to LA when she was driving back and forth to Solvang a nearby town to get her teeth fixed to get her body fixed to get I mean everything about her was a lie yeah. she impeached herself Lawrence she impeached herself and then, of course, there was, too, the fact that she accused the guards at a JCPenney store, which is a big department store chain here, of having molested her on the tar parking lot. And she this is what she said, which gets me every time, that they twisted her nipples 44 times. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you hear this. Keeping count. <laughs> yeah, like as if. The security at a super at a, at a department store would literally knock her down because Gavin stole something, and would uh, accost her sexually in front of her husband and children is the most preposterous thing. Yet she sued J.C. Penney's and they settled with her, and she was able to get money. And she she had her children testify to this that this did happen to her. So she, we already know then she's a she's a grifter. Mm -hmm. She's after money via suing people. And this is what she really wanted with this trial. She wanted that $25 million for herself. And she thought she was going to get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, some people aren't quite aware of the, they haven't looked into the trial too much, the relationship that Michael Jackson had with 
the lead prosecutioner, I guess, Tom Stedden. And um, there, I mean, how long did that, it, I mean, it does come across of a bit of vend- vendetta, like you say, some of the charges were a bit ridiculous, the sort of conspiracy, the kidnapping and stuff like that. But like, how, what is the history between Tom Stedden and Michael Jackson? And why did it appear that this guy was just hell bent on getting Michael Jackson behind bars? Well, Tom Mesereau was the person who filled me in on this um, more than anyone. And what he said is that uh, Snedden had gotten involved and gotten the FBI involved. And that came out later in documents that Snedden spent his time from 1993 when there was a settlement to going around the world trying to find anyone who would accuse Michael Jackson and who he could use as witnesses. And to that end, he even was in Australia. He was everywhere he could be. to redo what he thought was, you know, a failure on his part with the Jordan Chandler case. And unfortunately, he got stuck with a very bad group of witnesses who were going to testify against Michael, but he didn't care. He did not care. Um, He thought he had proven enough. And that's why he slapped Michael with all these additional charges, because if it wasn't one thing, then it was providing alcohol to minors. If it wasn't sexual conduct, then it was he conspired to kidnap the Arvizo. So they wanted him to be do jail time, prison time, and they didn't care how they were gonna to get to that end. Um, in fact, I actually talked with Akin Kostich, one of the prosecutor, prosecutor on that team. And he said to me toward the end, he said, we really have a goal. And uh, even if Michael is not convicted, um, you know, we have we have a goal here. In other words, they wanted to smear him one way or the other. That was Sned talking through Auchincloss, in my opinion. Um, but they thought they won. I happened to run into them at the restaurant, um, kind of far away from the courthouse that I used to like, and kind of on the end of the world at the very west part of, of California. And I, I ran into them the night before um, what was to be the verdict, and the jury was deliberating. And they were celebrating. They had a celebratory dinner that was off to the side in a private room in that restaurant. Some of them, Auchincloss was at the bar at the time. That's how I spoke with him. But Sneddon was already celebrating. And so for Sneddon to answer your question, um, Michael knew he was after him. Tom Mesereau said to Michael, you need to leave Santa Barbara forever. You need to, this man will not stop at this, what you've been through in the Arviso trial. And so that's, hence Michael went to uh, you know, Bahrain and later to Ireland. He had no home. He had, think about the most uh, visible man in the world, the, the, the most visible entertainer in the world, now not having a safe place. He could no longer return to Neverland and that was advised to him by his attorney. So Snedden did accomplish something, which was to ultimately create Michael Jackson's fall, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, I, what did the, the trial take out on Michael, like the toll of Michael Jackson? Did you see as the trial went on, his demeanor, his health, his, you know, the way he held himself changed as we went through that trial. Because obviously there was the pajama thing that is sort of infamous, you know, he turned up in his pajamas. But on Verdict Day in particular, I mean, he just, he looked so fragile, didn't he? He, he was very fragile the whole time, frankly. He's, he's thin, um, you know. I didn't realize that that he was wearing a wig at the time, but of course reporters were saying, you that's not real hair, that's not anything, it's wigs, it's this. It was like, they characterized him, he was like a cartoon to the media. Um, And and that came through clearly as he had to sit there every day and 
knowing that he was being eyeballed and judged, uh, not only by the jury, not only by the prosecution team, but also just by everyone in the media. And yeah, it took a toll on him. We know that he was going to a hospital nearby to get uh, regular drugs. We know now that he was was a drug addict. Um, you know, once he he died and and was you know was discovered the propofol, etc. Um, and and that's this spiraled him down, downward to a point. Matt, Mesereau told me, and I don't know if I included this in the book, that Michael used to call him at three o'clock in the morning, every night. He couldn't sleep, never slept. He was crying on the phone to Tom Mesereau. Tom Mesereau had to keep reminding him that, you know, look, you're innocent. You didn't do this. We're going to win this case. You'll see. And so, yeah, the toll on Michael was unbelievable. I don't think he ever recovered from it, frankly. As I said, I think that's what killed him, ultimately. I blame Martin Bashir for having started this whole trial. He's the first witness, and that was the reason Stedden was able to get to the Arvizos. So in my mind, when you hear Prince William blaming Martin Bashir about Diana's death, and that the fact that the BBC was irresponsible with him, well, the same can be said for Michael Jackson. And I said it back then, but I will repeat it now because it's more relevant, and you can see the truth of it. Tom Mesereau, when he did cross-examine Bashir, the first witness at the trial, did bring up these reports of his malfeasance in, at the BBC, that he had been written up more than once by the BBC for uh, less than uh, honorable journalistic practices. I'm sure, I don't know if you know that, Lawrence. Mm -hmm. You read the book. Yeah. And, and, and you knew it. You knew it watching the trial because you see the rebuttal video and versus uh, Martin Bashir's documentary and you think this isn't working this is wrong the timeline's wrong um the, looking back at it it was very clear to me that's why I wrote the book again but truly honestly when I heard Martin Bashir had brain cancer I actually and I don't like to have be happy about anybody's misery but in that case I said you had it coming and I talked to fans, certain fans that I still maintain contact with, and they said the same thing. He had it coming. He was a no good. He was a, he was, he destroyed Michael Jackson's life. We didn't know how much he destroyed Diana's life until recently, but he certainly destroyed Michael Jackson's life and he did it for, for his own personal gain. And so, yes, perhaps karma is a bitch. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's it was difficult, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, you can't directly say he's a reason why they died, like Michael Jackson or Princess Diana, but he is—he did play a huge role in both. I mean, when that Diana interview came out in England, it was a huge turning point for the way the royal family treated Diana, the way the pubs, you know, there was either you were kind of on Diana's side or you weren't in this country. Um, the media were attacking her more than ever after that documentary because of what she said against the royal family and her husband and the things that were going on and the, you know she revealed the you know she sort of said the unspeakable things that you're not meant to say as a royal right. she pulled back the curtain on the royal yeah, exactly and, and then she had to suffer the consequences but also the media like you say was even more after her and of course that yeah. is how she died by being chased down by media so yeah. I, I believe that prince william is not wrong to now blame his mother's death or Prince Harry is not wrong to conclude that his mother's death was somehow in part and parcel to Bashir's stunning documentary. 
Mm -hmm. I don't think you can remove those two things for her. And you certainly can't remove them for Michael Jackson because that was the main centerpiece that Tom Stead, and you want to know Tom Stead and how much he was after Michael Jackson. It was after that documentary. He said, this is perfect. I have proof. Here it is, Michael sitting on a bed saying he drinks milk sippy cups with uh, these children, with, with Gavin Arvizo. He's admitting that he sleeps in the bed with Gavin Arvizo. And so he had what he needed. And, and again, that trial not only made Michael Jackson frail, not only made him, uh, you know, spiral downward with drugs, but it also left him without a country, without a home, which, mm -hmm. you know, think about it. Yeah. Michael Jackson had no safe place. He had no place to be. Yeah. And I, I think what made me angry with Martin Bashir in particular, and it was, it, I don't know, he had a job with an American news yeah, he was um, at ABC for a while. He had a big yeah. job. He got a and lot the, of money. The day after Michael Jackson died, he came out and paid tribute to Michael Jackson and said, "Well, you know, I didn't. See, I just want to make it clear, I didn't see anything whilst I was there. I just reported it." But and it was just like, "Are you kidding?" As a Michael Jackson fan, that made me angry because you know that the toll it, you know, it, the, how much it affected Michael Jackson. You know, it was his it, health, his career. It destroyed his home. It destroyed so much. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, yeah. and for him to do that is such a phony baloney thing, Lauren. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on now. You knew what you were doing. I, I don't know if anybody saw this footage. I don't think so um, when it aired that he actually brought up the Pope with Michael. And in talking about the Pope, he started talking about the Catholic Church and the priests and the whole, that was the beginnings of really pulling out the scandal of, you know, pedophilia in priests. And he brought it up because he was hoping that Michael would take the bait. And I mean, that's something that when I watched this and studied that the entirety, because I do have a copy of it, I was able to get it um, through a private detective um, that worked on the case, um, invest, private investigator. You know, I looked at it again and again, and I thought, you creep. Here you are pretending that you're going to help Michael Jackson with his Children's Day and how much he cared about children all around the world, which he did. And you're going to now bait him with talking about the Catholic Church and priests who are pedophiles in a way that it never was said per se. It was just he was dangling it out there about what's wrong with the Catholic Church. Look at the Pope. and but I mean, unbelievable. Unbelievable, Lawrence. This man is a monster. He was always a monster. I didn't know anything about, obviously we didn't know why did Princess Diana, now we know, he claimed that he had the scoop and showed her documents that the family and others were going to out her and be against her. She would have never agreed to that interview. She would have never done that interview in the way that she did. She was, she was royalty. She was, no. There was no such thing. She set the stage, by the way, for Meghan Markle and Harry, Prince Harry, to come out now against the royals again. It was Diana who took that step. No one else. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the most important witnesses to Michael was Wade Robson. And I don't know if you have seen, have you seen Leave in Neverland? Of course, I did. Yeah, you've you seen the documentary. And what were your thoughts? That was the first time, you know, I. I didn't believe the Arviso accusers at all. You know, I, it just didn't make sense to me. Um, there was, you know, the Geordie Chandler 
incident is you know you think why did he pay him off but then you see there was a pressure from the dad and there was a motive and there's recordings of the dad sort of say I'm going to get everything that I want you know and I'm not a parent myself but I imagine as a parent if someone had abused my son you wouldn't be able to pay me off I would want to see that guy in prison right um but leaving Neverland it wasn't so much Raid Robson that because you know to me he should you know be done for perjury because you know he's kind of come out and said you know he lied one way or the other he's lying um jimmy safechuck for me was someone i mean the parents i thought were both morons in it um but jimmy safechuck for me was the only person that put that little doubt there the stuff about the wedding and things that was the first time in my life being a massive michael jackson fan you know i had tickets to the o2 to go see it it was the o time for all i don't like the sound of this I mean, what did you make of the documentary watching it? You know, I, it was very disheartening. Mm. I I had to rethink things. Um, I really was uncomfortable watching it. In fact, I started to watch it at one point and then I had I just shut it off because initially I really believed that what Wade Robson was about was getting money out of the estate. Yeah. He claimed he wasn't, um, but clearly he had been after the estate for some period of time. He had hoped that they would hire him in the Cirque du Soleil or whatever it was, was, and that didn't happen. He just wanted to get even. And I really believe that. And as being the first witness for the defense to uh, to say that Michael never did anything wrong, as you say, he perjured himself one way or the other. How convenient to come out years after Michael is dead, who can't defend himself because he's gone, to now raise all these outrageous allegations. And Jimmy Safechuck, um, where was he all these years? Why was he hiding? Um, why was he not found by uh, Tom Snedden to be the, the witness? Uh, it just, it, you know, Tom Snedden put on a variety of witnesses who claimed that they had had some contact with Michael Jackson. Mesro was able to uh, show that there was no real truth to it, um, that they were, you know, exaggerating at very best, but at worst, absolutely lying. Um, why didn't they call Jimmy Safechuck? You know, that's strange to me. Um, and and also, at the same time, yeah, I agree with you. It, 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 it gave me pause. Um, I felt that, you know, there was something there, there. And uh, it made me very uncomfortable because for me, as you are a Michael Jackson fan, to me, Michael Jackson is the greatest entertainer of all time on this planet. Mm-hmm. that's how I feel about Michael Jackson there is no other MJ there is no one who can compare to him between his choreography his dance his voice his music his, all of it I mean he he's a package that you can't touch and uh you know that I don't want to think of one of my greatest you know idols being something you know horrifying and actually to tell you the truth Lawrence if I did consider this and and had to think twice about it, you know, I came to the conclusion that there was never any penetration. First of all, no one ever said there was any penetration, right? So then you think pedophiles go all the way. Mm. Pedophiles don't just goof around. So then you think, you know, Michael, having always thought he was a child, got stuck in his adolescence, wasn't a sexual being, was in that world of, this, I don't know, never land. Okay. And 
you know, it's possible perhaps that like kids do, brothers and sisters, brothers and brothers do experiment at the ages of 13 and 14, some of them, um, that this is where he was stuck, that he had gotten stuck in this, this time period of his adolescence. I, that's the best answer I could come up with. Um, that, yeah. You know, and, and, and to me, in my, in my view, that means that he wasn't a true pedophile. He was trapped in his own body as a kid. And, and I do believe that, honestly. Mm. And so, again, without penetration, without anything else ever being testified to, ever being mentioned, then did Michael really do this? Did he, did he was he the evil um, pedophile that he's been made out to be by the prosecution? I, I, don't, I don't think so. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'll say Ray, Ray Robson, he just doesn't come across as believable. Like there was there was one moment where, well, f firstly, you know, when he does um, talk about the abuse, he, he he says that Macaulay Culkin was abused as well. He says that outright. Macaulay Culkin is always adamantly, absolutely not, never. Like, this is ridiculous. But, you know, this is Ray Robson saying that Michael Jackson, no, he just discredits Macaulay Culkin, who says nothing happened, and says, "No, no, it did happen. Like I was in the room, and he, he'd go in privately somewhere, and I knew what was going on. He'd kind right. of make out like that, and then he'd say things like, you know, well, yeah, when the abuse happened on me, like I was bent over, and he'd say people would understand because they're ignorant, and there was a picture of Peter Pan, and I was just thinking, I've never, you know, I've never, if I was going to make a lie about Michael Jackson and being in a room, I would say, I know that Michael Jackson uses the word ignorant. I know that there's Peter Pan stuff everywhere. That's, that's, that's what I would say if I was going to lie about Michael Jackson committing a crime in a room in Neverland. Right. And, and yeah. that, you know, that tells you something right there. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know. We saw images of uh, Macaulay Culkin, aside from his testimony, where I have one of these pieces of evidence where you know Michael had written on it you know welcome to doo-doo club welcome to uh, you know he, he was <laughs> he was being he was a kid and you could see it I mean you know who who talks about doo-doo club when you're when you're not five years old or eight years old I mean Michael was stuck in in in, in his body again I I truly believe it and um no I don't think he he did anything to Macaulay Culkin and, and Culkin has been steadfast um, and again, the people who testified, and there were, I think, four or five of them, about supposed alleged abuse, one of them said he had to go to counseling because Michael touched him on the outside of his jeans or something. He had to go to counseling? Really? I, you know, uh, Mesereau just slammed that witness, and there were others similar um, that were overboard, very overboard. And you have to remember, Michael was the, the biggest star at the time. They were desperate to be in his company. They, you know, who didn't want to be around the biggest star in the world? Who didn't want to be treated to candies and everything that was going on and, and you know, perhaps get a job like Wade Robson did. Um, everybody copied Michael Jackson back then. I mean, in the 80s, everyone around the world was, was, you know, wearing Michael Jackson type clothes and was trying to look like, I mean, not every person, but I mean, <laughs> no, these kids were in love with Michael Jackson. And I think, I, I still question anything about leaving Neverland. Um, I just, I, I, There was something about the train station, wasn't there? There was something about the train, the train, a room above the train station in Neverland where 
I think someone had said that one of the two had said they were abused in a room that wasn't built yet. You know, yeah. Before, yeah, 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 so yeah. there was something like that. Uh, you know, there were so many different stories they told in mm. that documentary um, and, and also in court about Michael. We saw pictures of his theater, for example. Um, and there was a separate room with a bed with a glass partition, just so you could look at the, the movie. And, um, you know, you wonder, why did Michael have that? It is curious. And again, mm -hmm. these are things that led me to believe he was guilty throughout the trial. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why did I think he was guilty? Because I saw a picture of a room that was partitioned away from the theater seats where it had a bed in it. Um, that's kind of damning, I mean, really, but then you think about Michael Jackson's life and the fact that he was, he was odd. He did things his own way. He walked around in a mask before, look at us in the pandemic. We thought he was an absolute freak and a nut when he walked around in a mask, <laughs> when he put masks on his children so that they wouldn't be recognizable by the media. I mean, he was one of a kind and his life was very, very different from anybody who could, could ever imagine. So would he put a, a bedroom in the in the theater? Yeah, maybe he wanted to relax and not be around all the kids that he had there. I, I don't know. I don't have answers to that, Lawrence. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I, I yeah, it, yeah, it made you think twice about things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I thought he was guilty all along in the trial until I realized that no, he didn't. He didn't do this to this kid. And no, I wasn't sure that he'd ever done this to any kid. Mm -hmm. I, I think it does speak volumes that his kids have all turned out well, in that, and they've all, you know, they've all, they've always spoke very highly of what a great dad he was to them, you know, yeah. and and I, I struggle to believe this vicious paedophile would be able to do that. Three children that have come across very well spoken, and you know, and obviously, you know, there's people looking after them in Neverland and things like that, but are always, you know, without a doubt, always there to defend Michael no matter what. I've always, you know, adamantly. No, like they could, they not even the fact that we didn't really see him, he wasn't really involved in this. They've always said, no, he was a really hands on dad. And, you know, he was, he was a brilliant, amazing dad. Absolutely. I mean, he, he shielded those kids. He needed to mm -hmm. do that. And again, Bashir, what does Bashir do? He takes that moment in Germany where Michael held the baby out so that the fans could see um, Blanket. And because they were begging from below to see the new baby. And he wasn't gonna drop that baby, but Bashir and then everybody else took off on it and, and just made Michael look like an insane person. Bashir mm -hmm. did even more with that in the documentary. And uh, Michael wasn't insane with his kids. Michael was very responsible with his kids. He loved those kids to death. And yeah, you're right, they've turned out well, which is proof positive that he was a good father. And, uh, there was so much good about Michael Jackson. There was so much that he did going around the world and walking into hospitals with gifts for the kids. Never did he brag about it. Never did he talk about it. Um, you know, all that he did for children. Um, and I think, again, wanting to have a children's holiday speaks to the fact that he never felt that he had childhood. And he, he specifically said that in the documentary that wasn't aired, the part that wasn't aired, the part you didn't see. And he talked about the fact that he never had a Christmas because his mother was, um, uh, what do you call it? I forget now the type of. Uh, Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witness, yeah. thank you. I yeah. could blank out on things. You know, as Jehovah's Witness, his mother 
They didn't have any holidays. They didn't celebrate birthdays. They, think about that for a minute. You know, and then he's on stage and forced by his father, whom I met, who is a monster, was a monster, you know, mm -hmm. with a whip, not a real whip, but that that's how he treated my folk. Uh, you yeah. grow up in that kind of scenario. And you also grow up with your brothers all sleeping in beds and bringing home girls while they're performing when you're five and six years old and you're witnessing that. You're sleeping. I went to Gary, Indiana. I saw Michael's house that he grew up in. Everybody slept in the same beds because there was no room with all those kids. Everybody slept with each other, the kids. So you have to you have to also take that into account, Lawrence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, and you talk about Michael's dad, Joe. Like, even we'll just watch it, not so much even with Michael, but with some of the sisters and the brothers when they've been interviewed and stuff and the topic of their dad comes up. They even talking about him they look terrified when they're just talking you know if they if someone talks about you know what was it like growing up and did you know how harsh was your dad they seem really scared and careful how they answer those questions no question about it um, michael talked about you know, there's so much in that that documentary you know extra footage that stays with me lawrence and mm -hmm. it never leaves me and so one of the things he went into was the fact that when he was an adolescent now of course he's changing in puberty and so from the time he was an adolescent and a big star and all was well, but when he got into the stage of puberty and breaking out with pimples, like everyone does, et cetera, hormones are changing. He didn't want to go on stage. He was embarrassed about the way he looked. He was very self-conscious, self-conscious. And he, uh, you know, he, he did not want to be seen. He didn't want to be in front of people like that. And uh, he said that he went and would go and hide in the backyard of their house. Now they lived in Encino and he would go in the backyard and hide behind the bushes because he didn't want to join the tour. And of course, Joe would go and find him and pull him by the ear and get him on the bus. So, you know, Joe was a, uh, he was not a nice man. <laughs> Let me mm. put it. He was yeah. not, he was a user. He tried to use me. He wanted to get, uh, get a hold of my book and own it with me. And I said, I have a contract. I can't do that. Oh, you could break the contract. I mean, he was all about himself, as we know. Mm -hmm. But I had a personal experience with him where he insulted me about my weight. And I thought, okay. Really? Wow. <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, I don't even know you. You're gonna you're gonna lash at me about my weight. Um, at the time I had it was heavier. The good thing was it did get, spur me on to lose 25 pounds. And when I kept speaking with Joe and I did, because he wanted to try to get book rides for me, um, I told him that. He said, oh, well, you're looking good now. So he, he did this to all his kids. I mean, and Michael did say in the documentary, again, that he credited his father with his sternness and his, his way for, for creating uh, such, such a star. And so, you know, he had very mixed feelings about his father, no question. Um, but he had a tough, tough childhood. He had no childhood. Yeah, no, no absolutely. And I, and I think, I mean, do, do you think um, the relationship with his brothers and sisters post the trial? Because I mean, there was that that interview with Latoya where in the early nineties where she signed up accused Michael of being a pedophile, but then she kind of came out and said, "Well, it was her partner at the time that made her say that." And she, but it's her brother, and it's how could you do that? To, you know, but I mean, who knows the influence that she was under? But do you, what do you think his relationship was like with his brothers and sisters? 
not good, mm-hmm. not good. And I'll tell you why. Um, for example, when Conrad Murray was on trial, okay, they thought that they were going to get a huge settlement from AEG. In fact, one of the brothers went out and bought, I don't know if it was a Rolls Royce or a Ferrari, something. And I remember thinking to myself, this fits right in with the fact that they all rode Michael's coattails and that they all resented Michael for being such a superstar. And that he had to somehow or another help support and give to these people all his life who drained him of whatever, you know, sense of love that he could have had from them. When you have a sibling that all they want to do is get your money and get paid off or get not paid off, but you know, get a piece of the action. Mm-hmm. And somehow or another, you're, you're doing this through giving money to your mother, whatever case would be to your father. Um, he had nothing to do with them at the end. And he wanted nothing to do with them. They were users. And I, you know, I hate to say it. I know, I know they're here and alive and love to, you know, present themselves as this loving world around Michael Jackson. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. Um, and like I say, it was at that moment where I saw that one of the brothers went out and bought this fancy, fancy car prior to uh, AEG. It was the civil suit. And AEG was found not guilty. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, did, we had to return the car. But that was, to me, evidence, Lawrence, that this is what they wanted all along. They wanted Michael's life. Michael had Rolls Royces. Michael had staff of hundreds of people. Michael had everything that they could have wanted. Um, they had crumbs from Michael Jackson's, uh, whatever, benevolence. And um, so now all of a sudden, oh, they're going to they're gonna make it big because AEG is going to be held responsible for Michael Jackson's death. And the, the brother goes out and buys a fancy car before the verdict came in. <laughs> that, you know, there are moments like this, Lawrence, that stay with me. I don't know if they're that important or not, but to me, that spoke volumes. Mm-hmm. When is when the "This Is It" concert got announced uh, for two thousand nine? Did you think that concert would ever happen? There was something, even even having a ticket, there was something that I was still cautious that I, I, I had actually, a feeling. Truly, Lawrence, and, and this is a strange little piece of the puzzle. I'm one of my closest friends um, in LA was a friend of Michael Jackson. And um, when I say friend, you know, Michael didn't have friend friends. Mm-hmm. People didn't get near him. He was constantly around the world, etc. And when he wasn't, he was hiding, you know, from the world. But she knew him from the, her days at Studio 54. And he always called her Angel, Angel Face. And um, she was, uh, uh, she goes to the dermatologist that Michael had gone to. We all know who that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while she was there, she ran into him and it was right before this is it tour. And he showed her, he went in and he said, I'm working out. I'm doing great. And he pulled up his shirt and showed her a six pack. You know, he was actually bodybuilding, even though he was so thin. So no, I didn't think the concert wouldn't happen because I heard that from her at the time. And I, and you know, there was no reason for her to lie to me. She, she, she was in Michael's corner. She'd known him forever since Studio 54 days in the 80s. But, and this was in what, 2000s. But you know what? I thought the tour was going to happen. I, I never questioned that it wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. I, in my mind, it was going to happen. And Frank DeLeo, his manager, you know, had pushed it and said, you know, you'll outdo Prince 
by doing this tour and doing so many events at so many concerts in a row. And, and Michael very much wanted to outdo Prince. That was the one artist that he felt was a rival. Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, I thought he'd go ahead with it. You know, when you see that, um, the, the rehearsal on This Is It, I mean, he was very much ready in my mind. Because mm-hmm. there was that, there was concerns expressed by Kenny Ortega, wasn't there? That Michael was not well, like to the point where can we do the concert not well? And it, the only thing I do, I'm, the only thing I do notice in this is it is when it's the ballads and stuff are great, sounds great, doing great, but I, I can't help but wonder is it quite wonderfully edited at some points because there is some of the dancier stuff it does feel like it's a bit chopped up because he's wearing different outfits and stuff and you kind of think you know was he getting through smooth criminal was he getting through a full rehearsal of that and stuff like that so I mean it's sort of wondering what was his health leading into it I suppose well I suppose uh, you know obviously they did their best to make to give you the best of this is it because we Mm -hmm. never got to see the concert but, you know, when you see Michael behind the camera and watching, you know, the ghosts and all the creatures come in and being directed and he's very involved in how this is going to look um, on stage and he gets on, up on the cherry picker and they, they don't want him to. And he talks about, I need to save my voice. I'm not going to sing this now. Um, yeah. Was he older and ha- going to have a, perhaps a hard time, you know, uh, outdoing himself or even being what he had been? So many years prior. Yeah, he, he knew that. But I truly believe he was ready. I, yeah, he was on drugs. Yeah, we found out later it was propofol and this and that. But when he woke up, he was ready. This man was the greatest entertainer of all time. He could have done that. I believe it. Maybe not 50 concerts, but he would have gone on. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, there was a lot of question marks around in his death in terms of, at the end of the day, only one person really knows what happens, and that's Conrad Murray knows the complete situation but there there was a listening to his statement and kind of the times he was sort of in and out of the room the time that Michael Jackson was unconscious and the paramedics turned up and from what I've read the paramedics more or less pronounced him dead there like in the you know before he went you know sort of saying he's gone but Dr Conrad Murray was not on his watch take this guy to hospital and it yeah. just see you know just simple things like I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I know you don't do CPR on a bed. Um, you, you bring them down and you put them on the floor. You know, not, you shouldn't be on a mattress. But I mean, they just seem. Was it just a terrible accident how Michael died? No, mm-hmm. I don't believe so. I was at Conrad Murray's trial as well, um, and I I really believed he would be found guilty, which he was, and um, it was totally irresponsible what he did with Michael. It was totally, um, I mean, for him to be on the telephone and when he's supposed to be keeping watch and he's administering that much of propofol to him. There's a doctor in Ireland who I spent quite a bit of time with that we flew him over here for, when I, I had a television series of my own called True Crime with Aphrodite Jones. I don't know if you all are familiar with it out there, but it, it airs in England, it has. Yes, it is, yeah. And there's an episode I did on Michael Jackson and, and doing in so doing, we actually flew Patrick Tracy to New York and he told me privately, um, we didn't put it on the air, but that this was interesting. Michael was getting propofol from him, but it was very small amounts. And what he would do, he wanted his face to look better. 
from the dermatologist, you know, Botox or whatever he was getting. And yeah. so he would have the propofol and then sit up and then say, okay, put me out again because I want more here or more there. <laughs> I mean, I could just see it. This is again yeah. going along with the picture, Lawrence, of Michael being cuckoo <laughs> <laughs> and doctors enabling that. I don't blame Patrick Tracy for that because truly Patrick Tracy was responsible with him. There's nothing wrong with administering a small dose of propofol, putting someone out, and then an hour later, whatever it is, administering it again. Um, he was cautious, careful, and responsible. A Conrad Murray, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he, he killed Michael. He's, he, in my opinion, he killed him. I mean, his negligence certainly is what killed him. He was found guilty of that. But he should never have been administering that amount of drugs. He, you know, I mean, Michael was playing the eensy weensy spider with Conrad Murray and AEG. You know, I don't know if you all know that little uh, game that mm -hmm. I'm talking about, but you kind of crawl up and what can I get out of you? Sure. But as a medical doctor, you're going to just administer whatever you like and whatever he asked for, milk, what he called it, and not keep watch. That's outrageous, Lawrence. Outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, with leaving Neverland, it's it has damaged Michael's reputation to some extent with some radio stations refusing to play his music. Now, is there a way that Michael's name can be cleared? Because anything I can think of is Geordie Chandler, is Gavin Obviously, If this didn't happen, as men, they've grown up to make their... Do, do you ever think we get to a situation because Jolie Chandler's always been adamant he doesn't want to be in any kind of media, any kind of court case? To, can you see ever in the future Jolie Chandler comes out and just says the truth, whatever that might be, as as a grown adult? You know, it's odd that he hasn't, and mm -hmm. you know, especially in, in light of leaving Neverland, you'd think that he could join uh, the chorus. Um, he didn't. Frank DeLeo. Michael's manager at the time, I interviewed for my TV show, and he told me that Michael was, he himself uh, gave Michael, go ahead, pay basically the ransom, pay the, the Chandler family this crazy amount of money, because to you, as DeLeo said to me, it's like a quarter. Hmm. You know, it's like nothing. Because at that point, Michael was at the height of his career, Thriller was out, he had been through the 80s, and he was they were expecting to make multi-millions of dollars out for him. So they wanted to get rid of this problem. And Michael went along with that. So do we know what really happened with Jordy Chandler? No. Will Jordy Chandler ever speak the truth? I I don't see it. And I certainly don't see um, Gavin Arvizo saying a word about the truth. Um, I think the trial tells you and the verdict tells you the truth of that. So, you know, we're left with, you know, ugly questions. And yet, at the same time, we're left with the music that, frankly, Lawrence, I never go to a wedding, a bar mitzvah, any kind of party in the world that I'm at without hearing Michael Jackson's music. Yeah. Um, so perhaps radio stations want to ban it, but people in the rest of the world still love that music. It'll never mm. go away. Yeah. Do you have a favorite uh, song? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I guess... Um, <laughs> My my favorite stuff is from when he was little, you know, ABC, okay. you know, 
that kind of stuff. And it makes me almost cry to think about him so little um, belting this stuff out, got to be there. I mean, oh my God, I love that stuff. And of mm. course, who doesn't love Thriller? We've, I've been participated in reenactments of Thriller with my own family. Um, you know, we just, you know, I, I don't know how cuckoo you are about it, but <laughs> I know for me, I mean, it's just so much fun. It's so wonderful. It's just, you you can't help but love it. Yeah, the Bad Album, I think, was my my thing that I really was uh, the more sort of cuckoo over the Bad Album, the Bad uh, the bad Song, The Way You Make Me Feel. That's a great album. Yeah, Bad, <laughs> bad was, was, was definitely one of the top. And, um, I, you know, again, no one can ever take away from Michael Jackson mm-hmm. his talent and his contributions to the world. Mm-hmm. And if people want to now protest and ban him um that's on them mm-hmm. i i don't i don't think that's right i i just don't and again with the documentary leaving neverland while i was left with questions i also i also truly wondered what was their motivation for this why would they do this now what is it why are you lying on the stand and, or changing your story why are you coming out now jimmy save chuck why didn't you, you know, go after Michael long ago? Michael Jackson is dead. He can't defend himself. Um, it's not fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I suppose the people that have watched Leaving Neverland and feel uneasy about it and have doubts, as someone that has covered the Chandler case, been in the Arviso trial, has watched Leaving Neverland, and you, you know, you know people of the Jackson family, you know people that have been in that circle. What makes you believe that Michael Jackson's innocent? You know, the way he talks, the way he, I got to know Michael in that, in watching that video over and over and over again, the, the Bashir uh, video. Um, I, he's just so innocent and naive, naive. Now, he was naive to allow Bashir uh, access like that. He was naive to think that Bashir's orchestrating this sitting on the bed with Gavin Arvizo was going to be good. Um, to me, that speaks to his, his innocence. It speaks to his childlike uh, behavior, his childlike mentality. And um, that's who Michael Jackson is for me. That's who he is. Um, stuck in, in a childhood forever. And um, anything else that that comes along, I'm sorry. I just, I don't, I won't allow myself to buy it. Let me put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, well, thanks so much for talking to me today, Aphrodite. And uh, yeah, I really enjoy your book. I'm glad that you didn't sort of share any rights with Joe Jackson. because I'm not sure I would have read it if his name was attached to it. So uh, <laughs> I really, <laughs> I really urge people to to read that book. It's a really great read. And yeah, look forward to seeing more of your stuff in the future. Thank you, Lawrence. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. So um, a big thanks to Aphrodite for um, talking to us there. Really big insight. And, you know, I think we we covered pretty much all of Michael Jackson's trials and tribulations um, in that talk from all the allegations to to his death. And... um, 
you know, I think it's one of these things now that we're never going to know the complete truth um, with Michael Jackson. But anyway, guys, I, I don't know what, you know, I don't know if anyone has had doubts about Michael Jackson, if this helps you guys in any way or if it, you know, makes you think, no, you know, I don't think there's uh, an excuse for Michael Jackson's behaviour. Who knows? Um, one of these things, isn't it? Will we ever know the truth? I'm not too sure we will. But anyway, guys, thanks for listening. Um, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Shapes of Stories. You can follow me on Instagram under Prestige Books, and you can follow our Facebook pages under the Shapes of Stories or my personal well, my personal page I have, Lawrence Prestige, where you can find out more about my books and more news to come that way. If you can donate any money and support the show in any way, please um, look at the information box, the description box on the podcast, and um, yeah, anything you guys can... Um, can uh, spare to support us it's um, massively appreciated and thanks for listening and um, hope to bring you more episodes coming very soon thanks guys